Welcome to The Coda, a music podcast and the perfect end note to your week. I'm Brian Hasty, and joining me now, live on the mic, is the Liam to my Noel Gallagher, the Isaac to my Taylor Hansen, Rob Christofferson. Rob, how are you? I'm great. I, I'm glad you see me as an Isaac Hansen, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, I, I think it's flattering. It's kind of the, you know, less well-known of the Hansen brothers, so I'm, I'm cool with that. I'm cool with being the less well-known Hansen. So you're not a Zachist? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what have you been listening to recently? I have been. I, I have a playlist that I that I listen to on repeat that just gets me kind of through my day. That's mostly what I've been listening to. But I've also been diving into some new albums as of late, and one of them is the new John Anderson album, Years, and that's uh, it's a phenomenal record. It's uh, kind of one of those Dave Cobb produced albums that is in the vein of the Johnny Cash, Rick Rubin stuff, and it's short, it's sweet, it's kind of to the point by and large, and it's it's a really good, really good album. Yeah, it's only, yeah, it's like 35 minutes or whatever, right? So Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not long at all. I listened to the new Airborne Toxic Event album, and I, I've always been a fan of them just because uh, I really enjoy the book White Noise by Don DeLillo, and that's where they get their name from. But they make this kind of a almost ethereal kind of rock music, which I, I really enjoy. It kind of puts me in a good headspace. And their new album's not bad. It's a, it's a little lengthy, I would say. Like, uh, but it's an album that was like I guess like five years in the making or something like that. But uh, not a, not a bad album by any stretch what about you brian what have you been listening to <laughs> i am a, a true born and raised canadian so i listened to the new carly Rae jepsen dedicated b-side which mm. is a compilation i guess of all of the tracks that didn't end up on her album dedication still so good uh, still enjoyable it's perfect for this time of year as we were talking about off mic before it is is dang hot out here uh in this part of the world right now so we're just enjoying that um for better or for worse i guess enjoyment is, is the wrong word tolerating but let's let's go with tolerating yeah, uh, that is absolutely correct. And let me tell you, you melt in these fucking temperatures up here because the humidity is just god awful. Yeah, my hair is just like insane. Like I had a work call and uh, the boss was like, put on your cameras, everyone. And everyone was like, no, it's it's just a bad situation hair wise. Yeah, exactly. We're sweating to death. You want us to put on goddamn fucking cameras? Are you kidding? Yeah. Me? Yeah. This is a phone call, guys. Come on. Yeah, let's let's just take it easy. So I think the the one thing that I have to ask you before we proceed with this episode, Brian, there was a new Jason Isbell in the 400 unit record so that came out that, uh, you know, before we have recorded this one. W- what did you think, Brian? It was so good. Honestly, yeah. like I, I told you, it was um, two weeks ago on Friday, and uh, it was raining my neck of the woods, and I just sat by a window and listened to the entire thing all at once, and then I did that again uh, the day after on the Saturday, and just so many great tracks on there. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of one of those albums that you could put on, and you can really devote time to it, or you could just like let it flow through you as you're going through your day, and just like holy fuck are we going through this or what and it's like the yeah it's the perfect 40 minute record like listen like a like a, a river and i'm trying to think of the one uh, oh uh, uh, be afraid like things yeah. like that right kind of in the middle of the record 
um, some personal highlights there. I really, really, really enjoyed that. If you haven't listened to it, folks, you need to go listen to Reunions by Jason Isbell in the 400 unit. I thought you were going to bring up the uh, new uh, Florida Georgia Line Collection six-pack, including a song called Beer 30, which is a whole new higher low, depending on how you feel about Florida Georgia Lines. I have not devoted any time to it, and seeing as how you said I didn't need to listen to I Love My Country, I will not be devoting any time to it. I Love My Country is the last track on uh, this, uh, I guess, like a cobbled-together collection of EPs, or like sort of tracks that, that make up this uh, ad hoc EP. I'm, I'm sad to hear that, Rob. That is okay. That is okay, because, uh, you know... Uh, life finds a way. So hopefully sometime in the near future, uh, Florida George line creeps up on you. Yeah, maybe it'll, it might happen in the, in the future. I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm not holding out hope either That's way, fair. but uh, it's coming into this trend of uh, artists that release EPs before they release albums in which all those songs will inevitably appear on one album. Like, um, well, Haley Williams. Yeah. That, right. Yeah. Pedals for armor. Like there was pedals for armor one and two, I don't think there was ever a three. I think the album fully came out after that. Uh, yeah. Famously, uh, what was it, last year, the Lumineers did that with their album three, I think is what it was called. I, I can't remember exactly, but uh, it wasn't a bad album. Not, you know, anything. It's a concept record that I think is good, but I think people in the future will look at that record like, 10 15 years down the line be like okay this was really actually a good record so yeah for sure mm. rob let's move on to the main topic of uh, today's episode it is something that you and i uh we've melded our two loves together right so mm. with the love of reading and the love of music so the idea of a rock biography seems almost as old as the genre of music itself since post-war war ii period where teenagers became a dominant force in society the desire to shed light and offer insight into the glamorous and often outrageous lifestyles of idols has been a major preoccupying force with music fans and so this is where you can find us jumping into the fray. And with that out of the way, we're here to launch into the first edition of the Coda Book Nook, exploring books about music. And this week, we're talking about Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows by former Crows drummer Steve Gorman with assistance by rock journalist Steve Hyden. So this is going to be three sections. We're going to talk about the book itself in terms of tonal language, the content, the principles, um, our view of uh, you know the music itself. And then we'll go into a, uh, a five-point rating system to sort of figure out where we sit about things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's a solid format that you've come up with here, Brian, and I'm I'm down with it. I enjoy it. So I think uh, in terms of the book itself, internal language, it very much feels like Steve uh, either recorded himself or was recorded and sort of like gave in oral history of the band, um, as is often the case with a lot of those like different rock bios that like someone actually like sits there and just compiles everything together um, in terms of interviews and then sort of like pads and fluffs. It kind of it felt like that a bit in certain places um, in terms of like the the lack of like below the surface details i guess the best way of putting it in terms of like you know i felt this way so there i was angry and i got drunk a lot Mm -hmm. yeah exactly uh let's be honest steve gorman was probably the only person that could write this book if anybody wanted to of the black crows (laughs) seeing as how he was the most sober-minded of any of them at any given point except for i mean rich robinson he just seems kind of like a loner so at least like you know i'm with this band but i do my own thing i don't want to you know stay in fucking hotels with you after all of this is said and done Uh, but like i think he gave a fair portrait of what this band was like and there are there's many stories about the tempers 
that fucking Chris and Rich Robinson had. They didn't fucking get along at all, which you get from this book. And I think a lot of this comes from an interview that uh, Steve Hyden did with Steve Gorman on his podcast, the Celebration Rock podcast, back in 2017. Uh, he had him on. They talked for like an hour and a half, and you get a lot of the stories that are in this book from that uh, podcast episode, and I re-listened to it before uh, I came on to talk about it, and a lot of the stories are the same. You know, he pretty much gives you a rundown of things, but the interesting thing is, is like the book seems very repetitive and that's not necessarily Steve's <laughs> fault. It's just, they fucking bickered and argued about everything all the fucking time. And that's exactly what it is, Rob. It, it felt very cyclical. was one of my notes. It's just, yeah, exactly. We make, you know, we put an album together. Everything goes great. Then everything goes to shit. And then we are okay for a while. Then we get into a fight and then, you know, uh, things end and start again. Yeah, exactly. In the preface to the book, Gorman says, you know, it was the same routine, fight, tour, record, fight, tour, record. And that's really what you get in the book. And there's, like, great stories in here. Don't get me wrong. The uh, the stuff with Jimmy Page was great, uh, in which, you know, Rich Robinson really becomes an asshole at that point. <laughs> Fucking Christ. Yeah, like, who turns down, you know, Jimmy Page's offer to, you know, either add a guitar solo or produce a single track on a song like... I don't know. I think I would be kind of envious of, of someone in that position, but apparently Rich Robinson thought they were uh, fine without him. Yeah, exactly. And and I think one thing that the book touches on a lot is despite the fact that the Black Crows did what they wanted when they wanted and yeah, they chiseled out a fan base that was loyal, they always did it for money. <laughs> like, there is no area in which they didn't do it for money. So... I think you get kind of that avenue out of this because like I'm pretty sure Chris Robinson would sell his soul for the most part and like probably include a Grateful Dead track here and there. But uh, <laughs> it's just, yeah, the, the book is repetitive. It's good. It's just, it's repetitive. And I think the best bits are the bits you get when uh, they're talking about making the albums. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those are the most enlightening bits of the album or of the book. And uh, the Rick Rubin stuff is kind of hilarious because <laughs> Rick Rubin is often painted as this, like, oh, God, this guru. And, like, the Black Crows basically told him to fuck off. <laughs> I do feel like there's a certain, you know, as time progresses and, and more and more stories come to light, it feels like, like Rick Rubin has sort of, like, failed upwards almost. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Like, it's so weird. Like, when you think of all the things that he could have done that were, like, really fucking terrible, Rick Rubin has had more successes than failures. Yeah, like, uh, average-wise, absolutely, but at the same time, like, how much of that is actively him versus the passivity of his uh, being, I guess? Yeah, exactly. Like, what would a full tilt fucking rick rubin be like he just like have like the worst fucking ideas ever <laughs> we need six glockenspiel tracks friend <laughs> yes yeah, six and you know there's uh i think it was like rick rubin that mailed steve gorman a fucking metronome <laughs> yeah yeah uh, so, I mean, like, the divide between us is that you are a, a pretty big Crows fan. I'm familiar with, uh, I mean, the greatest hits. And, you know, I've, I listened to the Live of the Greek, the the Jimmy Page collabo live uh, mm. Zeppelin outing. 
Um, but I'm always DTR, right? Like, I'm always down to read. So it was a really interesting uh, bio to, like, one of the reasons I'll read a bio is not necessarily because I know the band quite well, but it's it's if I'm interested in learning um, more about them. And I feel like this book kind of gave a somewhat accurate uh, description as well as depiction of events as they unfolded. But there's this weird thing in a lot of rock bios, especially those that I feel were, like, recorded to tape and then, like, transcribed, where there are... Uh, there is an ability for the storyteller to come off as more neutral than they probably were in a lot of different situations because a lot of these characters, especially mm-hmm. the Robinson brothers, were painted in a very specific kind of way that plays up all of the tropes we know about them publicly as well as privately. And then, you know, it, it felt like Gorman was an active participant, sure, in certain places, but I feel like perhaps there's always the story left untold with a lot of these things that you don't necessarily get when you read an like an, um, like a, an oral bio with all the members involved in a band, let's say. Yeah, exactly. It just seems like I was an observer. This is what I did. And when I didn't like something, I would say, fuck you, man. Like, that, <laughs> yeah. like literally yeah. over and over again. It's just like, fuck off, man. Fuck you, man. Like, it kind of seemed that way uh, to me, at least. And fuck, like, it, it contributed to this, like, kind of pedantic cyclical nature that the book really got into. It was just... Oh hey, we went on a tour. Somebody pissed us off. Fuck you, man. Let's. I'm gonna fucking kick your ass. And then, tour ends. They go back into the studio, and it's just like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's funny you say that because I was just literally thinking about, uh, for example, at one point when they're opening for Aerosmith, like uh, the way that Gorman describes, like Joe Perry is not cool to them, definitely makes me feel like that was perhaps like an embellishment of like a comment he had made that a writer um, decided to put in there. Yeah, probably. I, I I wouldn't be surprised. It's like the hot takes are kind of hilarious in this in this book. You know, oh, dude, it's... the funniest one to me is uh, early on they're playing some MTV Music Awards thing, and uh, he like Steve Gorman talks shit about Vanilla Ice for um, sampling Queen, but like most of the Black Crows music is based on like you know Southern blues. Uh, and mm-hmm. and you know it's kind of like outgrowth. So like it's kind of like a weird pot and kettle kind of like moment there almost. Yeah, I would I would agree. It's just, you know, how they wore their influences on their sleeves. And I give that band a lot of credit for doing something that made them seem like they were out of their time. Like, they didn't seem like a band from the fucking 90s. They'd probably fit better in, like, the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, definitely the 70s when kind of that southern rock, bluesy shit was going on. And it was just a band at a time that still managed to sell a fuck ton of records. Like, I think that's one of the most amazing things about it. Like, I definitely think the Amorica controversy probably sold a fuck ton of records. Right, but this, yeah, I do agree, but it seemed like the, the cover depiction did seem detrimental to certain retailers, including Walmart, right? So Yeah, if, if Walmart is that big a deal to you, yeah. But, I mean, like, it's fucking Walmart. And, I, and they did eventually change it until they, you know, changed it back, like, I want to say, what was that, like 10 years ago or something like that, that they brought back the original cover? Okay, so yeah, it's it's it, there's a long, like what, like a 14, 15 year period in between one and the other? Yeah, it's about that. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess moving on to the, the content of the book, the principles and their place in like the music pantheon, what you were just saying is true. They, they did sell a shit ton of records um, in the early 90s. And my question to you, I guess, is like, wh- why do you think that uh, like uh, the first couple of records like resonated so well with an audience? I kind of feel like 
nobody had heard anything like that in a while. Like, especially for the generation that they're kind of appealing to, they're bringing in a crowd that's kind of probably older and like the younger crowds like eh, I've never heard anything like this before and they kind of just cut their own slice out and they were able to work with that and they were able to get on tours like the Monsters of Rock tour <laughs> which, which I feel like like straight up like odd man out on that one yeah exactly you got all these like hard rock fucking metal bands and then here's this southern bluesy rock band from Georgia that fucking has great songs but I I think it's the fact that they're I want to say that She Talks to Angels did a lot of service for those guys mm. I think that song made them relatable a lot more and I think like you know the lead single Jealous Again too is kind of a uh, their their content's relatable which is kind of weird considering you know it's Chris Robinson, and Chris Robinson's out there. He's kind of he's he's definitely like on a different fucking planet, just like channeled into the body that he has. And yeah, yeah, I, I I yeah, it's it's tough to really nail it down. I think like I think the people that loved Guns N' Roses for what they did and how they set themselves apart and during all that hair metal shit is the same reason why people love the Black Crows. It's funny you say that because I feel another analogous band would be Blind Melon. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. They fuck. They were so fucking weird during all of that stuff. But like, there's always scenes that produce these off kilter fucking bands. Like, if we look at the fucking 2000s emo boom and that punk pop shit, like, you had weird bands. Like, uh, you know, I've mentioned them before. Murder by Death. They're a band that has a very cello heavy sound. And they're on a record label with guys that are playing punk pop. And they fucking fit somehow. Same thing with uh, this day and age. I've mentioned them before. They have this very kind of soft alternative pop rock sound. And yeah, they were on a label that didn't get a lot of attention. But they, I don't know, they they fucking did it for me. And you should all really go listen to them. But uh, (laughs) there are a lot of just like weird acts like Foxy Shazam did not fit into that bill, but somehow they managed to fit into it. But I I think also too, the Crows kind of preceded the grunge thing just by like a few months anyway. So like if they had come around a little bit later, they probably would have gotten buried by it all, I think. Yeah, I think so too. Just like, uh, like, sort of like how a lot of different, um, you know, uh, second tier uh, hair metal bands do. Like, you know, like who's listening to Winger these days? Yeah, exactly. But I also think at the same time, if they had come a little bit earlier, if it hadn't taken them three years to put out that first album, they probably would have been a little bit bigger because they would have been a band that would have differentiated themselves within all of that you know, shit going on. So, right, but conversely, like would the quality of the songs been as good had it come out earlier in those like sort of like embryonic forms, right? No, they wouldn't have. But I mean, if you took fucking, if George Trekulius had gotten to that band <laughs> sooner, then yes, because I think George Trekulius had a lot to do with like the sound on that album on shake your money maker. Absolutely. And, at the same time, the uh, they owe a shit ton to Brendan O'Brien, who fucking engineered the fuck out of that album. I mean, that album made 
uh, people want to work with Brendan O'Brien, which I didn't even know at first. Yeah, it's kind of incredible to sort of like trace that backwards, right, and see how, you know, he ends up doing uh, versus for Pearl Jam after that, just based partly on, on this one, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, his um, uh, fucking cut of uh, Pearl Jam's 10 that came out in 2010 is way better than the original cut. Um, yep. I I hate the original cut just because it, like... It sounds very like it, it has an echoey kind of production, but it's like so fucking low. You got to turn up your goddamn headphones like <laughs> so fucking loud. And then Brendan O'Brien comes in and is like, here's how you do this and don't have to do that. So fuck. Yeah. I mean, surprise. Yeah. Brendan O'Brien just became like a household staple for everybody. He worked with so many of those grunge fucking bands that, you know, it pretty much put him on the map. And I can't think of many albums that he hasn't produced for Pearl Jam. Yeah, I'm going to go actually pull up his his production uh, record because I'm kind of curious. Oh, boy, it's a selected discography, just a bunch of names everywhere. I'm not going to stare at this. Uh, <laughs> he did produce uh, Mastodon's uh, epic Crack the Sky, which I've talked about before. Uh, you know, uh, Also, uh, uh, Papa Roach's Love, Hate, Tragedy, which is an uh, instant classic. I'm not even kidding about that one. Go listen to that now. Uh, right. Yeah, it is a is this an absolute fucking banger? What the fuck, Brian? What the fuck? Uh, I you know I realized the other day that it had been a couple of episodes since I actually like uh, you know respectfully talked about new metal, so I figured I might just slip that right under there. It's it really is only a matter of time before there is that one dedicated episode where we just have to get it out of our fucking systems, Brian. It's true. It's true. It's coming. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, another big figure, of course, is um, uh, manager Pete Angelus, which I found is kind of interesting because when the Robinson brothers listen to people like Brennan O'Brien and Pete Angelus, things go well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. When they didn't listen to themselves, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I think Chris Robinson probably made like had the worst fucking ideas of anybody in that fucking band. Just like god awful fucking ideas, like. The wanting to take them in, like, a Grateful Dead direction early on? No, fuck that. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> the thing is, like, in the late 80s, like, where were these... I mean, apart from Fish, right? But where were these, like, um, you know, jam bands kind of, like, appearing? Not really in the popular music landscape. No, I, I mean, fucking Grateful Dead, you know, they had that... They had a hit song in the 80s, which is weird to fucking say. But beyond that, jam bands were not commercially viable. I there aren't a lot of commercially viable jam bands. And if they are, they're on classic rock radio. They're not mainstream radio. Like the Almond brothers kind of did, but like they had albums, like they're one of the best examples of a band that can actually write good songs that end up on an album and then go and just fucking, uh, overplay the fuck out of them during a live show. Yeah. Which I think like you need both components. And I don't feel like the, um, the Robinson Brothers, they all didn't really have that uh, ability. It's funny because in, in the book, when they talk about um, their uh, tour with Oasis, the Brotherly Love Tour, they mention that Oasis is a great songs, good band uh, kind of band, as well as uh, Gorman self-reflecting this, saying that like they're good songs, great band band, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, that is a fucking great way to put it. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Yeah, because I feel like the, the greatest strength as well as the greatest weakness is the Robinson Brothers' is dynamic, and when they get out on their own way, um, good things happen, right? Like, you know, Jimmy Page of the Greek. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, like, 
that tour was supposed to continue onwards and upwards, and it did not for very obvious reasons, as is revealed in the book. Um, you know, there's a lot of like self sabotage, and I, I feel sometimes like it's like the one of the biggest, most enduring tropes in rock music is the idea of. Uh, you know, uh, trying to become the icon you've created in your mind. And then when you do that, then you sort of like go by the wayside almost. Yeah, I agree. And fuck reading that portion in the book about Steve Gorman, just like catching up with Jimmy page after all those years. And like what fucking rich Robinson said, I'm just like, holy fuck. It was, it was kind of like, I listened to it on audiobook, and it was hilarious to hear him explode. Uh, uh, in that is so fucking great because when you're too big when you feel like you're too big to work with someone like jimmy page beyond a tour like who the fuck do you think you are and it's i mean the only the only person who really do that is robert plant at this point right yeah yeah and it's it's kind of interesting how the only other band that kind of went through something like that was pearl jam with neil young and it's kind Mm. of interesting how you know those relationships that relationship has you know continued to kind of bloom versus you know jimmy page and the black crows which you know went down in flames well that's what i was going to say is that i feel like it's a much more cordial relationship that like mm-hmm. to this day you know um pearl jam will play like the bridge school benefit and things like that and they seem to be in tune and in touch with each other and like actually seem to give a shit about each other. Whereas like, you know, at one point Chris Robinson gets mad that, you know, the band's doing like basically like, you know, a jukebox type of situation where they're covering another artist's songs and he wants to get back and rock his own songs without understanding that like by that point, the black crows were a spent commodity. They weren't really like a, a, a known quantity to a new generation of rock fans who sort of, um, had maybe heard you know hard to handle or like she talks to angels on the radio but didn't connect with that yeah it's tough for a band who falls out of relevancy past i'm gonna say 1995 is when the black crows kind of fall off their relevancy not to say that they couldn't sell out theaters because they did they fucking played the fuck out of theaters from like you know the mid 90s all the way up until their hiatus in 2001 so if you fall out of that and there's no other viable means to get your like songs in front of people, then yeah. Like the only way that you're going to put butts in the seats is if you have that kind of combined set list of like your biggest hits in between a bunch of fucking covers. And that's what a lot of bands that, you know, when they do the nostalgia trips around the country, that's kind of what they do. Absolutely. And that's funny that you say setlist because one of the big points of contention is, is Chris Robinson's desire to like create a, uh, you know, a nightly weirdo setlist that don't necessarily conform to what a fan wants to hear. And it's funny reading that because I had um, in my limited time, you know, managing bands, I had one act in particular that had a pretty popular song that like connected with people locally. And it was like rarely played, unfortunately, no matter how many times I had to explain that, like, while this might be your, you know, your fourth show you know, uh, this week, it may be the first time that someone sees you live and you sort of need to make that moment with them. And it's all about connecting and playing the song that they know. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like uh, the first time I ever saw Dave Matthews Band live. It was one of the last times that he ever played Where Are You Going Live. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you going? <laughs> like, oh, man. Uh, so how, so how, do you, how do you feel about Where Are You Going? Um, It's kind of dave matthews trying to write a pop song and the fact that they you know made it for it was featured on the mr deed soundtrack was kind of weird 
<laughs> I uh, forgot about that. Thanks, Rob. Hey, no uh, problem. That, uh, that that exists. To me, the funny thing is, I guess you and I share this because to me, that song is uh, a buzz cut, right? From 999, the buzz back in the day. So that's the only relation I have to it. Not within the context of, of an album, but just as a single itself. And, you know, it's it's pleasant. It's inoffensive. But is it really like core Dave Matthews? Not, not really. No. Uh, and it was at a time when... Dave Matthews kind of made a pop record to hide the fact that he had made a record that he didn't want to release. So you had um, Every Day that came out before. Uh, You had Where Are You Going? And then they basically retooled those fucking um, Lily White Session songs and then put them into uh, Busted Stuff. And I would say that's probably their... One of their last great records, probably Big Whiskey and the Grugux King, is like the pinnacle of their later career. But uh, actually, I'm one of those people who doesn't mind stand up. I'll be honest with you, but I also think it's a time and a place thing. I think I I was into the you know DMB in 2004, 2005, much mm-hmm. more majorly than I was before and after. So to me, like that was the record that like resonated with me, and I thought that like American Baby was a really interesting single. It is a very interesting single, especially when fuck you you have. Dave Matthews band through the lens of a hip hop producer, which is fucking, you know, pretty and great. You know, it's definitely an album that I can only listen to. uh, It's not one of the ones that I go to if I want to listen to it, but I saw them on that tour. Those songs were fucking great live because they had an electric aesthetic to it. And I think that album kind of helped them to find that more electric sound that they mm. kind of have now with, you know, touring with Tim Reynolds and shit. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's not a bad, it's not a bad album, but yeah. Uh, but it's funny because like, there is almost like an analogous to be made between Dave Matthews band and, uh, the, the black cars in terms of like, these are like real, like, uh, touring draws right like dmb still mm-hmm. tours super consistently yep. the black rose starts and stops whenever they're on they're on right so i think yeah. that like in terms of being able to be a live draw as you were saying before there's still a, a pretty decent live draw across the united states yeah absolutely dave matthews band established that fan base very early on and they maintained it despite the fact that their releases uh their album releases kind of like were a um you know, they they didn't get a greater return on investment, I would say, in them. But they will always have that devoted fan base, and they'll probably always be a Live Nation band. So, yeah, it, it is interesting to see how two bands in that kind of situation can do things differently and how they affect their career. Of course, I don't... Th- like. I think those guys in, in Dave Matthews band actually enjoy being around each other. Like they're more <laughs> of a family than the black girls. <laughs> so that was actually gonna be my next point is I feel as though like the Dave Matthews band guys actually do get along versus like, uh, you know, the Robertson brothers and whoever they decide to like fill out the lineup and whoever can stand them for, you know, multiple months at a time. Uh, if that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the Dave Matthews band has kind of had their ups and downs and, Man, when I saw them on, in 2004, it just kind of seemed like they were a tired band, that they were tired of doing it. And I think if they hadn't made stand-up, they probably, man, they're, they're, they'd just be a touring band. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a touring band. A lot of older bands are touring bands. They just go out and earn money for the summer, you know. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's not necessarily the, the most, I guess. 
So let me ask you this, right? Do you ever read a rock by or something and it changes your perception of a band and makes you either want to listen to them more or less? Because in this case, like I listened to three Black Crows albums yesterday um, after learning everything I could about them through the lens of like Steve Gorman's years of uh, torture, I guess would be the best way of saying it. (laughs) But, uh, you know, so does anything you read make you feel detrimental about an act um, that you uh, cared about before enough to like make you kind of stop? Not necessarily the the like book length journalism most of the time i think bob mayer's book made me want to go listen to the replacements more because i hadn't really given the replacements much of a um a shake just because they seemed so fucking weird just just a weird band and like uh amongst a punk aesthetic you have a song like 16 fucking blue which i thought i love the fuck out of that song it's just so fucking weird but um, there haven't been many that I have stopped. Like, uh, usually it's, you know, when an accusation of something against a band member, that's usually when I stop. Like, yeah. brand new. I haven't listened to brand new. Yeah, like, we, we talked about Lost Profits. Not that I listen to Lost Profits all that much, but, yeah. Uh, it's, I haven't listened to Rooftops in years, or I think that's the only song I ever listened to by them, but... For sure. Um, yeah, I, I feel very similarly. It would take mm-hmm. a lot for me to sort of like stop um, in my tracks and sort of like uh, disavow a band in terms of like the long form journalism. As you were saying, it has to be like a news item that like directly impacts how I feel um, about a certain member of the band because I can't think of an instance where I read a book and like I was like, I'm never listening to that band again. Yeah, and I mean, for the Black Crows, there have been plenty of bands like them that have imploded, that have gone that way. The Replacements is a good example. Those guys mm-hmm. didn't really get along as much either. But, um, yeah, it's the, the, the long-form stuff, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't generally do it. Uh, there was an episode of Disgraceland that I listened to that kind of made me think a little differently about Sam Cooke. Right. Yeah, he's a music icon. He was also, like... In his extracurricular activities, he was kind of a sleazeball and an asshole. Yeah, and uh, it's sort of a reframing where you you kind of understand a person's um, whole being in that way, but you're still okay enough with it. Like, it's not, they haven't crossed that line. Like, okay, they can be a jerk, right? But, like, that is a commonplace um, in the popular arts, be it, like, movies or music or any sort of, like, other, um, you know, kind of thing that you decide to consume. Um, And you sort of, like, draw that line in terms of, like, okay, like, they're a jerk personality or, you know, they think highly of themselves, but how does that translate? And until it becomes like very detrimental, you sort of like call it there. Everybody has their own jumping off point and I don't really fault anybody for not, you know, jumping off when most people would or, you know, in other situations. But like in in a lot of cases, it's got to be something serious to make me stop listening to a band. Ryan Adams is a great example. I'll never listen to fucking Ryan Adams as long as I live. Yeah. And also, uh, more recently, Brian Adams, right? Oh, Brian Adams can get the (laughs) fuck out of here. All right, let us move on to the last section here, uh, Rob. So a rating on five, so five being the highest, one being the lowest. One is uh, just all caps, burn, burn, burn. Two is uh, would leave the bo- the book in a box. Three is I would lend this book to a friend. Four is I would buy a copy for a friend who is a fan of the act. And five is I would buy countless copies for all friends and family and get a decent sized blown up copy of the cover to hang in a central place in your living space. <laughs> I did like that last one. That was great. <laughs> 
I think I would go to a three, like honestly, yeah. a three or four. I feel like this book is really interesting for people who are just general fans of the band and even passing fans of the band. I think there's something to behold. It is a little bit long in the tooth, as we were saying before, because it is super cyclical. But mm-hmm. I do feel as though um, there is a lot of merits and it's very conversational, which I think works well for the book. It, it doesn't seem like one guy kind of like reciting his band's history over and over again. It does sound like a conversation that Steve Gorman is having with the uh, reader of the book. I, I would give it a four. I would definitely, you know, buy a copy for a friend who was a fan of the band uh, just because, you know, I've, I've been a fan for a decade. And it's kind of funny because I remember shitting on the Black Crows like probably like 13 years ago. I remember <laughs> I, I was on this golf outing with my dad and his uh, coworkers. He used to work for uh, MetLife. He used to sell insurance policies. And... I remember one of his coworkers had said, you know, I'm going to go see the black crows. And I'm like, ah, the black crows suck. And then, and then after that, I'm like, I've never really listened to the black crows. I should probably go listen to them before I say they (laughs) suck. And then I'm like, fuck, I got to eat my words now. They're great. Yeah. I mean like in a good kind of way though. Right. So yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't mind doing that. I've changed my opinions on certain artists, you know, um, it's, it happens. I, um, fuck. I listened to, you know, some bands when it wasn't fashionable to do so, and now they're, like, revered. It's it's funny how time sort of, like, uh, rewrites narratives, though. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, My Chemical Romance was popular, but, like, in my neck of the woods, it didn't seem like it was... It, it, people didn't listen to them because they almost represented the mainstream of... Uh, of that scene because mm-hmm. you could be on warp tour but you couldn't be too big and it wasn't fashionable to listen to bands like fallout fallout boy when they became big it wasn't fashionable right. to listen to like pretty much i remember getting shit on for liking bands on fueled by ramen <laughs> <laughs> i mean like there's a lot of good bands on fueled by ramen why are you gonna shit on me like that but uh yeah the moment they get big that seems to be the moment that people start shitting on bands and like i don't think the black crows ever reached that level because they never got that big but they've been pretty strongly consistent and in terms of their discography there aren't a lot of sour notes in it there isn't a lot of low points like um it seemed like they knew when the right time to make a record was they knew how to gauge themselves when they were writing songs and they were efficient at doing it. And because of that, there aren't really a lot of stinkers in their discography. So if you, you know, start with shake your money maker and you go all the way up to, I think the, was the last album was before the frost and until the freeze, I think was their last one. Mm -hmm. And they're all pretty goddamn solid. Um, Like I have a fondness for, Shake Your Money Maker and Southern Harmony Musical Companion and Amorica, but War Paint is probably and it's the album that I go back to more and more just because a band in their later years made something that was completely different, completely their, themselves at the same time and explored new, you know, sonic landscapes. Uh, in that case, like Americana, and it sounded good. So. 
Yeah, they're one of these bands where their discography definitely, um, you know, as you're saying, doesn't really have a clunker. Like a lot of them, maybe a little bit weaker than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely do enjoy um, having listened to Marco for the first time in forever. Like I remember giving it a shot when I downloaded it off of like uh, you know uh, Soul Seek in like 2004 <laughs> or whatever, right? Yeah. So I just I feel like there's a lot there, and I didn't also didn't know about the two um, the shelved albums, right? So Tall yep. and Law and uh, Band I didn't know about. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, didn't, I didn't realize that they had been released too, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. They're kind of like these um, pieces of. Uh lore in the band that uh you'll never probably hear but if you if you heard it live you heard it live you heard some of those songs live especially if uh they were the songs from tall there were some that they incorporated into their set lists and stuff but yeah it's it's always cool when bands have that kind of like um you know to go back to dave matthews band he may have retooled all those songs that ended up on busted stuff but if you go and you track down the lily white sessions like you understand like for a guy who doesn't like to release mm, like dark content it's fucking incredible i mean it it inspired riley walker to go and do his own version of that album and uh i highly recommend you go check out riley walker's version of the lily white session all it's pretty great um (laughs) but yeah i think the only clunker in uh, their discography is probably Lions. I hated that album. That's that's the, the only... V2 one? Yeah. 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 I'll have to get acquainted with that uh, probably sometime this week because I'm slowly making my way through their discography. So I'm hoping that like... Uh, I'm, I'm hoping not to hate it. I'm hoping to sort of like it. It's, it's just like... It felt like a band that was like making a record to make a record just because... Yeah. Like, there are bands that make records just to, like, go through the motions. I can respect a band that doesn't want to release an album every two fucking years because I I feel like you need to let those old songs sit for a while before you can even uh, write new ones. And, I mean, it's not just the release of the album. It's all the touring that comes along with, Mm -hmm. uh, with that album and everything. But, like... If you've got it, you got it. If you're on it, you're on it. And I think for bands, that's generally when they're in their younger phases of life. And I think you could see that within the Black Crows because from like 90 to 96, they were pretty unstoppable in terms of their output. And then, yeah, the pressures of being a band, not necessarily the pressures, but the Robinson Brothers and their or just the expectation of like where you are you know in terms of like pop culture right yeah exactly and like trying to fight against maintaining your relevance in it is something that I don't I, I, is something that they fought against really hard so yes and managed to keep doing it for as long as they did it so I give them props for that uh, this is definitely a good book, and I think if you really enjoy the Black Crows, go fucking check it out. I think even if you don't, like, even if you're just a casual band, like, you know, just yeah. dive into it. I think it's a really good place to learn more about them. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, let's be honest, this book, you know, spurred a tour that is now postponed, but uh, hopefully will eventually come, you know, eventually happen. I, uh, I, I, I bought tickets, goddammit. It needs to happen. <laughs> 
Rob, this has been it for episode 14 of the Coda Podcast. Where can people find us on the internet? You can email us, thecodacast at gmail.com, and you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at the Coda Podcast. That has been Rob. I've been Brian. And until next time, make sure to keep the cans on. Bye.